0: and revelation 5 which is so much and also the brief is to introduce revelation which is so much uh, so basically the plan is is that we're going to watch a seven minute uh, film by the uh, animated presentation by the bible society the bible project uh, bible project it's brilliant material and it does it will do the job way better than i would doing it to you and it's visual and then afterwards, because I, I sense this sermon is a bit of a hospital to pass to me in terms of there's so much to cover and it's impossible to do justice to everything. And, you know, you can do books, you could do you can do a whole, you know, we do 10 weeks on the first chapter. It's, it's so rich and loaded. So I'm set up to fail uh, in that. But this will be, if you like, fulfilling that brief of introducing revelation, this seven minutes. And then I'm gonna take, I'm gonna preach on that verse, which relates to every single person in this room, because we want sermons. We want to hear stuff that relates to us and that out of which we put stuff into practice. I think that's the purpose of, of the shared word. So first of all, let's just check this out. This is on apocalyptic literature and world. how to look at it. The
1: moon turns to blood, mountains crumble,
2: mutant locust swarm.
1: These are just some of the strange images we find in parts of the Bible called apocalyptic.
2: And while most people think the biblical word apocalypse means the end of the world, it actually doesn't mean that at all. So
1: let's talk about how to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So wait, the apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world?
2: No. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. An apocalypse is when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before.
1: Because I don't always see things the way they really are.
2: Right. We all develop familiar ways of seeing the world that can limit or blur our vision. So an apocalypse is like a revelation. Right. Now, in the Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show someone what's really going on in the world from a divine perspective. For example, take Isaiah the prophet. He's suddenly transported in a vision into God's throne room.
1: Oh, right. He's in God's temple, described as a bridge between heaven
2: and earth. And there, God gives him a divine perspective on Israel's past, present, and their future. So that Isaiah can bring challenge and comfort to God's
1: people in his own day.
2: Or think about the Apostle Paul, who was trying to stop the movement of Jesus, but then he gets stopped in his tracks by a vision of the risen Jesus himself.
1: Yeah, he realizes that he's fighting against the very thing that he's been hoping for, and it changes the course of his life.
2: So these apocalypses give people a heavenly perspective on their earthly situation, and they can give hope or they can challenge you. Or make you change everything. Now, those are biblical stories about people having an apocalypse. There are also whole sections of biblical books where a prophet describes extended apocalyptic dreams and visions. People call this apocalyptic literature. And reading these
1: dreams and visions, is difficult, I mean, they're filled with strange images. Like, let's take Daniel. He sees ferocious beasts coming up out of a dark sea, trampling people on the land, and then a character called the Son of Man is exalted to rule the world. What is going on?
2: Yeah, apocalyptic literature is written in a poetic, imaginative style, and it's packed with symbolism.
1: How can I know what these symbols mean?
2: Well, first, by studying the rest of your Bible. Apocalyptic imagery is based on biblical design patterns that begin in the book of Genesis and then develop throughout the Bible, like the chaotic sea in the first sentences of the Bible that God tames but doesn't eliminate as he orders creation. And so the sea becomes an image of danger, death, and cosmic chaos.
1: God and the dry land, which comes out of the sea, is the safe ordered place where humans are supposed to rule as God's image.
2: Yes, and also on the land are beasts that humans are supposed to oversee. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast. And start acting like violent beasts. Exactly. Now, sometimes a prophet will tell you what a symbol means. Like in Daniel, we're told those beasts symbolize violent human kingdoms. But more often, the authors just assume you know how to trace an image through the biblical story to understand its meaning.
1: Now let's look at the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, because it's one really long vision. The whole thing is an apocalypse.
2: Yeah, and it works the same way. It begins with John the visionary transported to God's throne room, where he sees the risen Jesus as the exalted king of the world.
1: But Jesus is depicted as a
2: bloody lamb. Right. It's a design pattern showing how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb from Israel's Passover and from the Day of Atonement. He gave his life for the sins of the world. And then John sees the ultimate beastly dragon, that spiritual power that energizes violent earthly empires. It's cast out by Jesus, the world's true king.
1: Yeah, now that reminds me. When I read the Revelation, I'm struck by all this cosmic destruction
2: and violence. I mean, it happens over and over and over. Yeah, in the Revelation, there are three seven part cycles of God's judgment. And it's another design pattern that connects together the stories of the flood, the 10 plagues on Egypt, and the exile to Babylon, and even more. These are moments when humans unleash so much violence and death into the world that God hands them over to self-destruction. It's like a reversal of creation in Genesis chapter 1, as God allows the world and humans to sink back into darkness and disorder. That's sobering. It is. But remember, in Genesis 1, God overcame darkness and chaos with his light and light. And so, too, in the Revelation, the death of Jesus and the death of the world as we know it is the pathway into the renewed creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus.
1: And so, while the Revelation
2: feels like the end of the world. It's actually about the beginning of the renewed world where heaven and earth are reunited and God's human images rule all creation in the love and power of God. Okay, this is a lot to take in. It is, and there's a lot in these books that is still hard to understand, but the purpose of apocalyptic is really clear. To give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. all right we did it
1: in this series on how to read the bible great we looked at all the styles of yeah. writing in the bible.
0: it's it's uh, very rich isn't it really powerful stuff so um father god speak to us now as we look at your word and would you encourage us would you stir our faith would you um yeah would you meet with us for your glory in jesus name amen so, this was a vision given by God to John, John who was an apostle, interesting enough he was probably the only one that wasn't um, killed for his faith, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, all the others are reckoned to have been killed, be it Peter crucified upside down, beheaded, James, uh, the others, so you know the, the standard of what suffering was back in the day and that they wrote from, we can't really relate to. Uh, and yet that is the reality and it's the reality for a number of our brothers and sisters around the world So we've got in visiting today from from Nigeria, you know in northern Nigeria Boko Haram what they're doing to the to brothers and sisters You know hundreds and hundreds of them are being martyred uh, each year That's been going on for years in a couple of weeks time I'll be interviewing for my podcast a guy called Timothy Cho. Timothy Cho was is a North Korean uh, man who managed to flee and he um, as he was in prison, he didn't, there wasn't even room in his cell to sit down. And the man he was lying on, the man in front of him, it, when, they, when they woke up, uh, that man was dead. He was literally lying on him all night. Um, Alan, I think your you, you work in India, there's loads of suffering in the persecuted church in India. We could go through all sorts of different countries where the, the standard of following Jesus uh, and, and the cost of it is so high. And in saying that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that what we're going through here, doesn't belittle our own problems, but it gives a bit of context, doesn't it? These verses that are being written round about the time of Emperor Nero. Well, Nero, and I've been studying this the last few weeks, it's been fascinating reading about that period in history, but Nero punished devoted Christians by coating their strung bodies in pitch, oil, and wax, and other flammable materials before lighting their feet and using them as human candles. So he'd be having parties and these humans would be candles with their legs in the air, and it was designed so that it would last a long time, and they would have maximum suffering, prolonging their torture and pain in his imperial garden. I mean, that's so sick and wrong, isn't it? But that is the context of these verses. And so when I choose to come to uh, and and preach essentially on uh, verse nine, I repeat it I John your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was the on, on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus so this word was brought as an encouragement for those of you that don't know, I've, I've worked for 20 plus years in Burundi in Central Africa, and it was when I went out there, the most dangerous country in the world. During the war years, when we prayed in the morning, a standard prayer, it was almost a liturgical prayer, but someone would say, Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us safely to the beginning of a new day. And that was because during the night we'd listen to bombs falling, and it wasn't a guarantee that we'd come to the beginning of a new day. It was so real, the likelihood of impending death. Now, living in the light of of death, which certainly isn't the end for the follower of Christ, and this is very hopeful, this message, it just heightens and sharpens you in terms of how you choose to live. And it helps contextualize and helps you to, to embrace, actually, the reality of the hardships you're going through. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you are going through a hard time, I suspect most of us are going through a hard time. Some of us, it might be just be anodomini because we're old and our bodies are wasting away, and we've got you know we're battling arthritis and all sorts of different conditions. Some of us, it might be because we're we're having parenting challenges. Some of us, it might be financial issues, the cost of living crisis. We don't know how we're going to pay the bills. Some of us, it might be a relational breakdown. There's a lot of brokenness in our lives, and I think that's that's quite normal. And so these verses hopefully will act as an encouragement to each one of us. A few weeks ago, I popped into Sainsbury's on the way back from a meeting. Lizzie had asked me to pick up a few goods. And, and uh, you know, I was hunting around, I was, I was, I was wandering around relatively aimlessly uh, searching for these uh, needed groceries. And as is often the case, you've probably done this uh, and, and had it happen to you, but I kept on, as I went down each aisle, I kept on coming across the, coming across the same shopper. And it was this poor daddy uh, trying to shop with a totally uncooperative three-year-old boy in his cart. And the first time uh, we passed each other, the, the three-year-old was asking over and over again for some sweets, and I, I couldn't hear the entire conversation. Uh, I just heard Dad say, now, Billy, uh, this won't take long. And, uh, and then, we, then, then we passed in the next aisle, and the three-year-old's pleas had increased by several octaves, and now Dad was quietly saying, now, Billy, Billy, just calm down. We'll be done in a minute. Uh, uh, When we passed in the cereal aisle, the kid was just screaming uncontrollably, and Dad, it was so impressive, he was still keeping his cool, and in a very low voice, he was saying, Billy, settle down, settle down, Billy, we're almost out of here. And we sort of reached the the checkout counter almost the same time, and and, uh, you know, he gave no evidence that he was losing control, and the boy was kicking and screaming, and Dad, very calmly, was saying over and over again, Billy, we'll be in the car in just a minute hang on, it's gonna be okay. And you know, I was impressed beyond words. And he went through, and I followed him through, and then I hurried up to him, uh, after him in the car park, and I, I came alongside him and said, hey, listen, and and he, 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 yes, I, I, I tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, hey, mate, I, I, I couldn't help just watch and be so impressed with how you handled little Billy. You were amazing. And he replied, don't you get it? I'm Billy. <laughs> And for me, it's not, um, it's not a three-year-old for me right now, it's, it's three teenagers. And, and I, I'm, I'm not saying that in jest, it's like, you know, we've all got our different challenges, haven't we? And listen, this should be encouraging the scripture to us, as, as I'm looking particularly at that phrase, patient endurance. What does that look like for us to patiently endure? There's a certain kind of bamboo in Asia that grows to prodigious heights, sometimes as much as 60 feet in six weeks. That's phenomenal, isn't it? 60 feet in six weeks, three times the size of this building maybe in six weeks. But the fact is that the farmers, when they plant that seed, they know that it will stay dormant under the surface, invisible for five years. Now, if they didn't know that after the first Year or two, they would dig it up and build and do another crop, wouldn't they? Because they're not seeing any visible, tangible evidence of progression and growth. But they do know it. And so they faithfully nurture that soil. And then after five years, approximately, it breaks through and then produces fantastic fruit and a very uh, lucrative crop. And I like that picture because, you know, in the area of prayer, some of you, some of I, I've been praying for decades for some of my friend, family members, particularly. And no prayer is wasted, and the watering and the nurturing, as we engage, that is not wasted. Keep going. And so I don't know whether you are weary or discouraged on that level. For example, with a with a loved one that you, you you can see they just, you know, sometimes we watch people they're making such bad choices repeatedly, repeatedly, year after year after year. And think, you know. You know we're not better off we're not better than anyone else uh, as follows as jesus we are just better off aren't we because we know we're forgiven and reconciled and we're free from shame and guilt and we've got a purpose and we know where we're headed and there's there's so much upside and we see people sort of lost in their darkness making bad choices well be encouraged if if um you've been praying for a long time one of my heroes is george muller who was a, a german who spent most of his life you know just 12 miles away in bristol nurturing into the thousands of, of orphans and he was an amazing man of faith, an amazing man of prayer, and he was known. He became known throughout the world as, as you know, all, basically it's like all George Mueller's prayers get answered. You know, he had incredible. He had a diary where he catalogued the thousands of answers to prayer, and he kept an ongoing prayer notebook in which he recorded all these requests and, and when they were answered. Anyway, one day he was visit, he was ministering in uh, Düsseldorf in his native Germany. He was approached by a missionary of that city who was really distressed. Because that guy had six sons and all of them were rejecting christ and uh, he was he was absolutely gutted and he said what shall i do and muller's advice was continue to pray for your sons and expect an answer to your prayer and you will praise god now six years later in august 1882 muller again returned to minister in dusseldorf and that time he was delighted to be greeted by a, a jubilant uh, missionary, who said that, you know, just a couple of months after your visit, I put into practice that prayer, and within just a couple of months, five of my six sons came into a vibrant relationship with Christ, and the sixth one right now is, is seeking out God. Now, Muller himself, he interceded for over half a century for the salvation of a small group of men. He once wrote, and this is quoting from his diary, in November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, whatever the pressure of my engagements might be, 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three, and I went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted, he said before his death. He writes, the man to whom God in the riches of his grace has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer in the self-same hour or day in which they were offered has been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these individuals, and yet they remain unconverted. But I hope in God, I pray on and look yet for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. That was his confidence. And those two men who were sons of a friend of Miller's youth that were still unconverted when he died in 1897. 52 years of daily praying and both of them came to faith after his death. That was the great intercessor. James 5, 16, the prayers of a righteous person are what? Powerful and effective. So I think we, all of us, we can think of people, you know, a lot of us is our children, that are not right there right now, whatever, or a friend or a sibling, uh, whoever, and we just pray, keep praying, keep praying, don't give up. Picture that bamboo, Psh, I can't wait, I can't wait to see my, my lad on fire for Jesus, you know, and him redeeming the the, bad, the, the the sort of cock-ups that have been in there. So we need that patient endurance. And listen, um, we are very good at moaning, aren't we? We are good at complaining, we are good at moaning, and can I say this, uh, as a fellow temptee to complain and moan, Life is, a lot of it is about attitude and making good choices. And patient endurance is sometimes sucking it up and choosing to be positive. Again, I just learned that from my brothers and sisters in in massive suffering uh, who are so still hopeful. It doesn't mean they're not having lots and lots of bad days, but, um, you know, we are on a journey. And the Bible makes it very clear that there are sucker punches in the mix and it's going to be tough and we just got to be faithful and hang on in there. And I love this story. This is Henry and Sarah Morrison who spent decades in Kenya, faithfully serving the Lord. And once, when eventually it came to their, their time to retire, they got on a boat from, uh, from um, Mombasa in Kenya. They got on a boat and they sailed home. Now, it just so happened, that, and they didn't know this, uh, that Teddy Roosevelt was on that same ship coming home. And he'd just been on a safari hunt. And, uh, and so as they eventually, weeks later, they pulled into uh, New York, into harbor, there was a massive crowd waiting for them. And the Morrisons who had served faithfully for decade after decade, they said, uh, he said to his wife, Henry, he said, look at that crowd. They haven't forgotten us. But of course, the crowd wasn't there for for them. It was there for Roosevelt. And as Roosevelt stepped from the boat, massive fanfare, people cheering, flags waving, bands were playing, reporters waiting for his comment. And Henry and Sarah went down the gangplank, alone, insignificant, nobody waiting for them. And they hailed a cab and went to this one bedroom apartment which the mission kept for uh, returning missionaries and henry sank into this de- depression over the coming weeks he's like you know this this is this is so wrong this man even if he's present he comes back from a shooting expedition and everyone throws him a big party we gave our lives in faithful service to god and for all these years and no one seems to care And Sarah's wife cautioned him that, you know, you've got to get over it. Henry replied, I I, I know you're right. I just can't. It's just so wrong. And Sarah said, look, Henry, you know God doesn't mind if we honestly question him. You just need to tell him how you feel. And you need to get this settled because you can't go on living like that. You'll be useless in ministry like this. And so go to the bedroom. He went to his bedroom and he got down on his knees. And it was shades of Habakkuk, you know, just crying out to God on his knees. He poured out his heart to the Lord. Lord, you know the situation. You know how it's troubling me. We gladly served you faithfully all those years without complaining, but now, God, I just can't get rid of this incident. After about 10 minutes of fervent prayer, the Lord met with him, and he returned to the living room with that peaceful look on his face, and Sarah said, oh, good. Looks like you've resolved the matter. What happened? And Henry replied, the Lord settled it for me. I told him how bitter I was that the president received this tremendous homecoming whilst no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but Henry, you're not home yet. And brothers and sisters, we are not home yet. And I know, some of you in this room, you are, you're putting in the hard yards. And I'm not saying that lightly, patient endurance. I honor you and your suffering and what you've had to go through, to keep going. And I, I think we have to believe that when Henry Morrison and Sarah Morrison eventually got there, when they did graduate to glory, the celebration dwarfed what Teddy Roosevelt got. And there were thousands of Kenyan brothers and sisters there, like, wow, yeah, go Henry, go Sarah, we're here because of you. Because you were faithful to the call of God on your lives, welcoming them home. James writes, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. And have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's why we need to spend time in the word of God because it brings realistic encouragement. Job is mentioned there, or how about, well, the suffering prophet, Paracelus, was Jeremiah, wasn't he? He was called by God against his protestations. He was mocked, scorned, derided, persecuted by his fellow villagers forbidden by God to marry or have children. You know, that was a tough call. There's Elijah, Micah, Zechariah, Amos, Hananiah, Uriah. But many of them suffered. But how, back to attitude, how are we gonna handle it? So this is a funny illustration, but you know, two frogs fell in a tub of cream. And one looked at the size of the tub, which were too difficult to crawl out, and thought, well, I'm stuffed. So he just gave up and sunk. But the other frog was determined to keep on swimming as long as he could. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe something can happen. And I'll be patient and, and just kicking away, kicking. And what happened when you, when you kick in, in cream? What happens? You know, eventually he churned it into butter. And they was able to stand on the butter and jump out into freedom. Which, which are you? Patient endurance. Hang on in there. You know, when God wants to make a mushroom, he does it overnight. Isn't it amazing how they can just spring up overnight? but when he wants to make an oak, he takes 100 years. And uh, you know, with God, delay is not denial. Sometimes you've got to remember how far we've come, not how far we've got to go. You know, with tomatoes, I, I didn't know this, but many, many many, of them, in fact, usually they are picked completely unripened and green, and then, and that's so that they don't bruise, and they'll obviously last longer, and then they, they're sprayed with CO2 before they put on display, and the CO2 turns them red instantly before they're sold. And, and they might look all right on the outside, but don't tell me that that tomato is as nice as a naturally ripened on the vine tomato. There's no comparison, is there? And, you know, we worry how fast we can grow. God is more concerned with how strong we grow. We want quick fixes, but healthy growth is gradual, steady growth. I think most of us are aware of the fact that pearls come from oysters, but do we know how they're formed? So basically, it all starts with an irritation, doesn't it? Some foreign particle gets into this, uh, within the shell, like a piece of sand, and, and so it works its way into the shell of the oyster, and the oyster can't push out the sand, uh, so because it's, it's, it's too big, And so what does it do? It, it, it sort of secretes uh, th- this liquid uh, and in the hopes of, of covering that piece of stand. And the bigger the particle, the more secretions, the longer it takes. So, so actually the bigger the, the particle, the more beautiful the, the pearl ultimately. And you know, maybe that person who really winds you up, you, you know, you can look through them in a different lens now, <laughs> that irritant in you. But actually, it's going to produce some beautiful fruit in the long term as you show patience and grace and humility and keep on loving the unlovable. But life is sometimes like that, isn't it? The bigger the irritation, the greater the value. And what irritates us is also often what requires our attention. To be something that God wants to do with it. And patience in the Bible again. I mean, look at Abraham waiting for and Sarah waiting for decades for the child of the promise. Decades and decades. Yeah, tries to force his hand. Sometimes we do that as well with Hagar and Ishmael, but that wasn't the way. Rebecca waiting 20 years after marrying Isaac, but clinging to the promise that she would have a baby. Joseph spending those years in obscurity thinking, has God forgotten me? Or Noah building that ark in faith again decades without it looking like it was a good idea. Job refusing to curse God and die as his wife recommended him to. Esther in that strategic position where God had put her being patient, waiting for the right moment. Mary treasuring those thoughts in her heart. And of course, God is patient, isn't he? That's 2 Peter 3, verse 9. God is, is, is patient. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to, rep- to repentance. But it's not easy. It's a hard discipline. And listen, all right, listen up now, if you've been checking out at all, which I hope you haven't, but this is meaty. I might read it twice. This is Henry Nowen. And he says, patience is a hard discipline. It's not just waiting until something happens over which we have no control, like the arrival of a bus or the end of the rain or the return of a friend or the resolution of the conflict. Patience is not a waiting passivity until someone else does something. Patience asks us to live the moment to the fullest, to be completely present to the moment, to taste the here and now, to be where we are. When we are impatient, we try to get away from where we are. We behave as if the real thing will happen tomorrow, later, and somewhere else. Let's be patient and trust, listen to this, let's be patient and trust that the treasure we look for is hidden in the ground on which we stand. So, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, with no matter what you're going through right now, to endure with patience. Be steadfast. Hang on in there. And I'm going to close with a story. It's a beautiful story. His name was Paul. And he lived in a small town in the Pacific Northwest many years ago. And he was just a boy when his family became the proud owners of one of the first.